and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. And I'm joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and introduce Ukraine, Maxim Panchenko. Hello, Maxim. Hello, Volodymyr. Thanks so much for talking with me today in our monthly episode. Today we are going to talk about May 2021. We are going to summarize the main developments in Ukraine's domestic and foreign policy over the past few weeks, right? So what were the key events? Yes, so we're going domestically to cover developments around some of Ukraine's oligarchs, namely Medvedchuk and Kozak, uh, who have been prosecuted by Ukraine's authorities. Also, we're going to embed it into a broader context of uh, anti-oligarch tendencies in Ukraine. And also, we're going to talk about some anniversaries, like the 9th, 8th, 9th of May and the deportation of Crimean Tatars anniversary. On the international plane, we're going to talk about the recent visit of, U- of uh, the U.S. Secretary of state to Ukraine. We're going to talk about the recent developments around Nord Stream uh, 2 and maybe uh, we also are going to touch on Belarus, on uh, what is going on there and how it impacts Ukraine. So let's start with the foreign agenda because what is going on around around Ukraine is very important. And what we see, the, the primary thing, I think it's it's Belarus. We are seeing that Lukashenko regime is turning into even more autocratic, even more dictatorial, awful, horrible dictatorial regime. Some people are comparing it already with North Korea, for example. One of the events, recent events, was when uh, a, a plane uh, uh, by Ryanair was uh, landed, forced to land in Belarus to arrest journalist Roman Protasevich, who was one of the founders of Nechta, uh, a telegram channel, one of those, those channels who were informing about those protests during summer and autumn, right? So, and the, the horrible thing around this is that it was forced to land in, in Minsk. It was not going to Minsk. It was forced to land in Minsk by a military aircraft, by MiG. So generally it is kind of a, an attempt of a military aircraft to attack or to threaten a civilian aircraft. And this is something absolutely unbelievable. Yes, it it really is, and uh, this only testifies more to the fact uh, how much of a, of a threat and how near us, near our borders, we have this threat. Yes, and of course, uh, the uh, the destiny of Belarusian journalists is is horrible right now because before that uh, we have seen the attack on Tutbai, Tut.by, which is uh, one of the uh, the most capable independent media in Belarus. We are talking more about this in our traditional Belarus watch. You can you can check it on our uh, digest by ukraineworld.org, our, our regular digest. But really the events are going, are developing with such a speed that, uh, of course, we, we need to follow it. So Lukashenko is the, the new ideas that he is putting forward, the new the new changes in, into the regulations about mass protests. For example, there is a ban to film on your cell phone or to make a live stream of a mass of a, of a protest. You cannot, for example, you can if there are a, a gathering of people, you cannot film it. You cannot stream it online. You cannot uh, support media through with with money. For example, if some me- 
media opens up a crowdfunding initiative, something which is very interestingly developing in Ukraine. Many media are opening up their crowdfunding platforms. You cannot do this in, in Belarus. And there are, you cannot do sociological research in Belarus, only the you know state uh, agency is, is allowed to do that and the state agency is, is saying that Lukashenko has 99% of support in everything else. So the things are really horrible, right? Yes, and also if we look at the ways this impacts Ukraine, this is also very serious because primarily this impacts, uh, well, Ukraine has joined the, the club of, of European states who have prohibited connection between Belarus and uh, the European Union and Ukraine in this case. So there has been the severance of connections, there has been prohibitions on the Belavia, the national aircraft carrier air carrier uh, of Belarus to, to fly over Ukraine's space and the European Union space. Uh, so yes, first of all, this impacts uh, the Minsk peace process. It has already been unstable because of the situation in, in Belarus for quite some time. There have been reservations of how we can carry on with that in Minsk uh, given the backdrop. However, now there is even no physical possibility for Ukrainian delegation to, to get to Minsk for, for negotiations even if we decided that this negotiations can further take place in such a place. Yeah, the role of Minsk as an as a intermediary between Ukraine and Russia, this is absolutely unbelievable right now. It is totally jeopardized now and Ukrainian delegation has already announced that it was looking for a new place. However, there is, I can see how Russia can profit from this because uh, Russia may try to say, oh, we're not going anywhere restore your connection to Belarus and fly into Minsk. So I can see how Russia can leverage this into rolling back this tendency of uh, connections being severed because it needs to sh- it has leverage for Ukraine to restore it and then it will be a signal to to the world look there have been some who severed and now are restoring. And also of course there is the security aspect because all of these developments with the airspace they are pushing Belarus first of all farther into the Russia's arms. Second of all we can see how Russia is aligning these days with Belarus for instance, when it comes to prohibiting Austrian and France, Austria and France from aircraft from entering the airspace of Russia, if not through Belarus. So uh, we can see how, how supportive Russia is of Lukashenko. So yes, this only accentuates that this bond between the two countries is very strong and therefore the threat that is going to be posed for Ukraine from the northern border is a real threat because it's not that much about Belarus being to the north, but about Russia. Of course, because they are having the common military exercises. Mm-hmm. There are several types of military exercises. And of course, if, if Russia, for example, goes on with, with the building of the so-called Union State, this is, of course, a huge threat for Ukraine and the, for, for the whole region. This is a threat for Baltic states, for example. And uh, let's not forget that this idea of Union State was first put forward but by Lukashenko himself when he was kind of a strong guy in the 90s and Yeltsin was a, as a weak guy. So Lukashenko was dreaming that he will become some kind of a president of a new Soviet Union. But right now it's, it's an instrument of of gradual occupation of Belarus by Russia. And we see that uh, Lukashenko has no room for maneuver, really. So, I don't, I don't know, I wonder if Ukraine can change the situation and maybe in some way, in, in some time, and say, look, uh, if one day Belarus, uh, Lukashenko will say, well, I'm fed up with this, you know, Russia, etc. I want to restore the links with the West. Whether Ukraine is able to become an intermediary and uh, 
we would talk not about Minsk agreements uh, between Russia and Ukraine, but about Kiev agreements between um, Belarus and European Union, for example. Well, we will see, but right now Belarus is a colony of Russia and what Russia tries to show to the West that the Belarus is worse than Russia, is a worse dictatorship, so you better you better have good relations with us, Russia says, so that uh, we could change it somehow, we could influence it and you have no no leverage. So this is kind of a very sad situation, but we, we are looking and this we are following this very closely. Uh, let's talk about Russia and Ukraine. Still you know, Ukraine's President Zelensky, Ukraine's Foreign Minister Kuleba are expressing this idea that there should be a meeting between the two presidents, Zelensky and uh, Putin. But so far we have the confirmation of meeting of another pair of presidents, uh, Putin and Biden, right? And um, it seems that uh, Vladimir Putin has achieved his goals, first to have a meeting with Biden and second to kind of lift sanctions against Nord Stream. We will talk about it later. But what do you think? Why Ukraine is, you know, putting forward this idea that there should be a meeting between Putin and Zelensky? Well, when it comes to the bilateral meeting between Putin and Zelensky, if we stay here for a moment, so it reminds me of this uh, wording that we agree to disagree. Because there is, there are talks on the both sides that, yes, uh, there can be a meeting and, yes, even there we want a meeting. Uh, however, uh, I think not earlier than yesterday, uh, I saw a new statement by Mr. Kuleba who said that there is no agreement at all about the agenda because Russia is not going to talk about anything Ukrainians want to talk. And for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian society, should even the president give in for Ukrainian society, it would be very strange if Zelensky went to, to meet Putin and talk about, uh, you know, trade, politics, anything, whatever, but not the things that are the most urgent. Surely. I think that Russia is going to talk about with Ukraine only if Ukraine is weak. At a point when Ukraine has no room for maneuver. Right now, Ukraine does have a room for maneuver, but we don't know what will happen with Nord Stream 2, for example, uh, and we will talk about just just in a moment. But I think Ukraine tries to show that it is open to talks and to show it that it has a constructive approach. But uh, the changes are huge. The first change is the agenda, as you mentioned, because Russia says, well, we will have the meeting only on the condition we will never talk about, not talk about uh, Crimea and Donbass, especially Crimea. And Ukraine says we will only have a meeting if we are going to talk about Donbass and Crimea. This is the first thing. And the second thing, of course, the different interpretations of the Minsk agreements. We have talked about it many times uh, in our podcast, so we will not uh, dwell on this later. Uh, here, if you're interested, you can check out one of our recent podcasts about the Russian escalation on the border. By the way, Russian escalation on the border with Ukraine is not gone. So as we talked uh, with you one month ago, that the troops are there, that the equipment is there, Well, it is still there, and so there is no de-escalation. So yes, the, some of the troops have been withdrawn, but from what I heard, this uh, tops with um, a, a couple of thousand of people, which is not significant against the general backdrop. And uh, the machinery is still there, the equipment is still there, is reported to be there, as it is 
in Crimea too. And uh, I also have uh, read, read, read op opinions of uh, experts who said that maybe Russia is waiting uh, for the maneuvers of NATO to be over in Europe in a couple of months' time, which uh, I think is going to, to happen by September. And maybe then uh, Russia will uh, do anything more decisive. So yes, the, this is no time to, you know, to weaken our attention to what is going on. Yeah, and Ukraine risks being encirculated, right? Because we We have troops on the eastern border, we have troops, Russian troops in Crimea, in the south, and we can have troops, for example, uh, in Belarus, right, if, if Belarus is absorbed by Russia. So the security situation is, is very, very difficult. And in this context, uh, the approaching Na NATO summit in June still delays the membership action plan for Ukraine, and this is a very sad, sad development. We know for sure that Ukraine will not give, uh, get a membership action plan, but this is another story. Let's talk about America. So we have seen the visit in May. We have seen the visit of uh, U.S. Secretary of State to Ukraine. What did it mean, Maxim? Well, uh, I think it was a, a very sobering thing and a double-edged sword for Ukraine because experts even have talked about that there has been an equal, the, the sign of equality put by Blinken between the external threat, which is Russia, and internal threat, which is corruption. So yes, we have, during this uh, visit, we have received uh, statements of support uh, on the part of the US, of the new administration, and so on and so forth. But also, we have received a, a clear message that corruption and reforms is no less of a challenge. And uh, it is how it is seen from the West. So uh, the, the importance of this domestic issue is no less important. So yes. I think we all agree with that, but the problem is if it is a statement that aims to underestimate the security threat or put it second, I think it's very dangerous. Uh, the security threat, in my opinion, comes first. And of course, corruption is a very important threat, but it still comes second. Of course, uh, of course, from our perspective, it is. And I think even Americans would not go and say that war is less dangerous than anything else. However, we need to see, why did I say that this visit was sobering? We need to see uh, how the situation is perceived by the US from behind the pond. Because our issue, the issue of Ukraine and issues around Ukraine and around Donbas, the Russian-Ukrainian war, they need to be embedded into a much, much broader context of, uh, of the US foreign policy. For instance, Biden has been believed to be an eagle during during his electoral campaign because of what he said about Putin and even after election when he said that Putin was a killer. You mean a hawk? Oh yeah, a hawk. And now he's been rather a dove, judging from his preparedness to, to meet Putin and judging from what he's doing about sanctions around uh, Nord Stream 2. So, yes, there, we need to understand that uh, the US is playing its own game. So it, this is why it's a sobering thing for Ukraine. We do yeah, not obviously, I think, I think there is no doubt yes. that every country is playing its own game. But it's, of course, very, very important to have the, the solidarity ties. But, so let's talk about this solidarity. Nord Stream 2. So the uh, one thing that, you know, if you put this into perspective what what is surprising is that during the uh, the visit of Mr. Blinken to Kiev I think President Zelensky said that Ukraine and United States have a similar vision of Nord Stream 2 and then after a few weeks comes the Biden's decision to kind of a soft and lift sanctions uh, from Nord Stream 2 from companies dealing with that uh, or rather a statement that and, and a statement that sanctions policy in uh, is 
is not constructive. So what is going on here? Why? Why it was this U- United States decision? So first of all, it needs to be generally said about the visit of Mr. Blinken that uh, messages in the wake of the meet of the meeting of the visit have been quite different. Uh, of course, there the positive signal has been. Uh, significant on both sides. However, for instance, Mr. Zelensky said that we discussed maybe a bilateral agreement, but for now it's hush-hush, we're not going to talk about it publicly. And Blinken did not say anything about that. So maybe there is different perception about the outcomes of the visit uh, of the two sides. And uh, this is uh, what also comes to to the Nord Stream 2 issue, because yes, Zelensky said that we have a common vision. However, there is a perception that something very uh, important has changed in Washington when it comes to, to uh, policy about Russia, maybe it's, I think it's obviously because of the forthcoming visit, a forthcoming meeting between Putin and, and Biden. So Biden essentially said that I am all against this project. However, it's near complete and I don't see how can I at this stage tell Germany that guys need to abandon it because it makes no, no sense and no effectiveness. However, I think that he was, he maybe should have looked at some more far-reaching consequences because I see how can this, how this can benefit his uh, future relations with Russia. However, at the same time, Ukraine's energy security and what's more important in the eyes of the US, the entire Europe's energy security has been quite permanently jeopardized because Europe is now on the hook of Russian another pipeline. Uh, this is not something uh, that can immediately go away even if all member states of the European Union wanted to. So that's a Yeah, and let's Let's not forget, for example, about the kind of a trade war between United States and Euro- European Union during Trump's administration, and that in June EU is going was going to review its tariff policy, and I think it was a very much more complex game because this trade war was precisely in many aspects between United States and Germany. So obviously, it is an attempt to kind of a not quarrel with Germany, but and we understand this attempt, but we. Need to also to put things in into perspective. First, Nord Stream yes. 2 is not a threat only to Ukraine, but to the whole Central Europe, to Baltic states, to Poland, to Slovakia, to Czech Republic, etc. This should be this should be remembered. Second is that Nord Stream 2 is not only a an economic threat. I mean, well, Ukraine will lose revenues, and and some Germans, German experts are telling us, you know, it's it's a competitive environment, it's a market environment, so you should fight. Uh, and why why should we think about your revenues? We're thinking about our revenues. This is fairly fair enough, but the problem is that it has a security component, not only the economical one, because if Ukraine loses the status of, you know, transit country, that will mean that Russia can do anything here. Because maybe this is something that stops Russia from a full-fledged escalation, is that it is afraid of its gas supplies being interrupted. And there all the talks about, well, we will have kind of a in parallel Nord Stream 2 and Ukrainian pipeline, well, you can doubt about it because, I mean, judging from the explosions in Czech Republic, we can imagine some explosions even due to, you know, not due to terrorist attack, but to increase of pressure. Imagine major explosions in Ukrainian gas pipeline and then Russia says, sorry guys, we will use only Nord Stream 2. So we should be prepared for that. 
Let's talk about further issues and let's let's turn to Ukrainian domestic policy. One of the key events in May was a new kind of a new attack on Mr. Medvedchuk, the, the key Putin's ally in Ukraine. So we see that Ukraine is also doing very sometimes very hawkish steps. Uh, Mr. Medvedchuk and his uh, political ally, Mr. Taras Kozak, uh, were accused of treachery of state treachery and uh, they really faced arrest but finally the tribunal decided that uh, Medvedchuk will be on home arrest and of course Medvedchuk guys are saying that this is all unjust etc and uh, his opponents are saying well look he's not in jail he's just in home arrest well i think it's not it's not about uh, these things whether he's uh, in uh, at his home or in jail because both things are uh, an uh, well are justification to how that that he's not being prosecuted so these are just small things where he are the main thing is that he's being held accountable and uh, of course we'll need to see how ukrainian courts uh, will see this case through because uh, we have known quite a good few instances of uh, how you know these big cases were launched but, but then they were dropped uh, or maybe they were protracted and so on and so forth so yes we will need to, to see what happens next it's not a victory just yet however uh, it is uh, very good that there are steps in this direction maybe this is tied just maybe is tied with the pressure from foreign partners maybe from the Biden administration also, because as, as we know, this has always been a major thing in US-Ukraine relations under the new administration. If that is so, we can only hope that uh, this is what is going to help Ukraine and to stimulate Ukraine uh, additionally to, you know, to, to see this case through. Yeah, Medvedchuk party has gone too far during <laughs> Trump's administration because it tried to play in American in American politics, right? If you, if we follow all those, remember those, you know, tapes of talks between between Biden and uh, Poroshenko, for example, those tapes were released by uh, by the members of parliament linked to Medvedchuk party or by his associates, and uh, and they were put forward by the uh, proxy media, Russian proxy media in Ukraine, and also by Medvedchuk TV channels. We started all that in our regular monitoring and Ukraine World. You can check our website ukraineworld.org and and the chapter InfoWatch. When we started it very very closely. In particular, those narratives, the MAM was put forward demo corruption. Demo means democratic corruption. So the Ukrainian actors linked to Medvedchuk and Russian forces, pro-Russian forces, were basically saying that Democratic Party is all about corruption, etc. So I think that there are two, really two, two lines uh, on this and uh, we should be following the situation. Interestingly enough that, uh, well, the key state actor which is uh, behind this action against Medvedchuk is obviously the uh, prosecutor general office and Ms. Benedictova is on the front line. And it's interesting because when uh, Ms. Mrs. Benedicto was appointed to this post, while the work kind of a, this was perceived by Ukrainian civil society as a huge step back and maybe kind of a, a victory of revanchist forces. Now we see that, you know, she's the person who who is targeting Medvedchuk as well. But really, the history, <laughs> the future will show us whether it will finish somewhere. Because obviously, for example, Mr. Putin is not happy at all that his key ally in Ukraine is under home arrest, right? 
Another issue, another very interesting issue, is that uh, how Ukraine deals with these oligarchs in general. And there are two sides of the coin. On the one hand, we see the increase of fortune of such people like Rinat Akhmetov, a dramatic even increase of fortune under the President Zelensky. So the oligarchization, which he promised, doesn't really work, it seems, because oligarchs feeling themselves quite, quite well. But on the other hand, we see the preparation of the anti-oligarchic law, which is written, which is being written in the presidential office. It is it, it will be interesting to see what will be in, in this law. Because apart from this anti-oligarchic law, there is this campaign of sanctions. Uh, we were talking about this campaign of sanctions against, you know, Ukrainian citizens who were who are accused or suspected in, you know, kind of uh, being uh, being Russian agents or whatever. In this game, in this attack, sanctions attack, there are also promises by Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council that oligarchs, some oligarchs will probably be targeted. So let's follow this. And maybe last thing, let's talk about anniversaries, the sad anniversaries this day, this month. First is anniversary of the deportation of Crimean Tatars in 1944. What can you say about it? Well, Uh, of course, as you said, this is a notorious anniversary, as is the another one that we're going to talk about, because this testifies again to to the painful historical events and context that uh, we quite often are doing here with uh, in Ukraine. Of course, uh, this. For the society, these things are still a double-edged sword. Uh, for instance, when it comes to memory of uh, you know of the Second World War and the Great Patriotic War. However, when it comes to deportation, I think that uh, Ukraine society is more united, especially against the backdrop of what has been going on with Crimean Tatars that left that were left in uh, that stayed in the annexed Crimea. So uh, because there are ongoing oppressions there, even now there are I think more than a hundred of cases in Crimea that are pending when Crimean Tatars are being persecuted for, for being terrorists and, you know, and so on and so forth. So uh, we can see that uh, methods uh, remain quite the same as they were under the Soviet Union. Of course, the world is not black and white. Of course, I can understand that uh, history is complex and, uh, you know, in the 40s, there must have been something that made the Soviet, uh, you know, the Soviets angry or something as it has with Ukrainians and other nations. However, when it comes to this Uh, being on the verge of maybe not genocide, but when you deport an entire nation, this uh, I think is in the role of uh, crimes against you know humanity and so on. Yeah, of course. And uh, well, the whole nation was deported in just uh, several days, and people were transported in, in horrible conditions, and then to Central Asia, to Uzbekistan, for example, to other countries. And they have they, they started returning to Crimea in 80s and well started reestablishing themselves in in Ukraine's uh, independent state. And then after the occupation of Crimea in 2014, basically we see another demographic change which is going on. So Russia is changing the Crimea demographically. It pushes out Crimean Tatars, Ukrainians, and it pours even more Russians, right? So Crimea was 90% Crimean Tatar in early 20th century, and it is now becoming more and more Russian. And this is also, I think, this is the issue of human rights. By the way, Russia tries to deny the deportation of 1944. It always says, show me the photos. And there are no photos because the photos are in KGB archives in Moscow. So when journalists try to 
illustrate the deportation, they usually are taking, you know, uh, paintings rather, or oral witnesses. And by the way, I, I would recommend a very recent film by Suspilna, Ukrainian public broadcaster, which is done by journalists uh, Natalia Humenyuk and Anna Tsihima, uh, which talked to many Crimean Tatars telling their stories. This is a documentary which is subtitled in English. And another anniversary in May, it's anniversary of uh, the end of the World War II, or as Russians continue to say, a great patriotic war. Ukraine has moved away from this image of great patriotic war. We are now talking of World War II, which started in 1939 and ended in 1945. Russians are still in the Soviet imagery of a great patriotic war, which started in 1941 with the attack of Nazi Germany on the Soviet Union. And the problem is the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were allies in two years, from 1939 to 1941. Of course, Russia denies it. Russia doesn't want to talk about it. And we are talking about it. And interestingly enough, I just watched, coming back to this, you know, Medvedchuk guys, etc. I just watched uh, the concert they have made on this, you know, after the ban of their channels, they established one more, which is called First Independent, which we actually believe to be First Dependent. On Russians' narratives. And we have an article on our website, ukraineworld.org, uh, first dependent. But it was it was hilariously aligned not only with Russian aesthetics right now, but with the Soviet aesthetics. Hilariously aligned, because it was like a very old-fashioned, uh, you know, concert with those uh, with those songs from the uh, Soviet Union, with those, you know, uniforms, etc., which basically gives me hope that they're targeting a very old-fashioned citizen. So with, with a deep Soviet nostalgia, they're unable to invent something. I think there are several issues to this. First of all, of course, there is no denying that uh, this has this issue has become part of the Russian world and you know of the whole concept of influence because this thing is is being exaggerated, especially this far after the events. Of course, when it comes to how this division is perceived in Ukraine, uh, between those who are going to celebrate this every year on the 8th and on the 9th, I think this is, um, the problem is, the issue here is that it is a very endemic thing. Because in the East, I mean, of course, in the West, if you ask, yes, it was the territory was divided and there was this, uh, you know, the US, SSR, the Germany alliance thing and so on and so forth. In the East and in center, when you ask virtually any family, they will say, yes, of course, we understand politics, but also look, there are our grandfathers and I cannot tell him that, you know, when he was drawn, he had no choice not to be drawn. He was drawn to defend the USSR. So what, his, uh, you know, his participation is undervalued now or something. So this is about a very endemic experience at each point. So that's where the main uh, hardship lies for this to be, you know, to move forward from, the, from, from, from this now on. And as cynically as uh, that may sound, and I'm sorry for that, but I think that this issue will be much less debated when there are no living veterans at all when enough time passes by when this will be you know far away enough from us I don't agree with you I think I think the problem is that it is being even more politicized as the veterans die 
and precisely because they die. Uh, because as they die, nobody is to tell the real story. And Soviet Union was never telling the real story because the real stories on the front line were banned from the from the public discourse. So the Ukrainian approach to commemoration, I, I like it, uh, by the way, because uh, first it aligns with the you know European form of commemoration and therefore the date of 8th of May and not 9th of May, which is kind of a Soviet date. The date of 8th of May was introduced, but the date 9th of May remained. It stayed. And basically the majority of Ukrainian citizens say they are okay with with two dates because they love celebrating and they love to go to their dachas or village houses to, you know, to be uh, on nature. So it's, of course, the pragmatic thing. But uh, I like the way how it is because the date of 8th of May is the date of commemoration of victims and reconciliation, while the date of 9th of May is the date of victory of a Nazism. So Ukraine is very serious about victory of a Nazism and that just crushes all Russian propaganda that Ukrainians are, you know, pro-Nazi or whatever. Of course, from the Ukrainian side, Ukraine lost quarter of its population during the World War II and uh, a great part of the population, about I think five, six million people were part of the Red Army. And of course we are we have full, you know, in many places of the country we have the monuments to the Red Army soldiers, etc. And nobody is challenging it. But there is another another part of the story which also needs to be told. Because Ukrainians were often, you know, those people who were between this totalitarianism and really as you rightly said, they had no choice. Under occupation, somebody was evacuated, for example. Somebody was not evacuated and lived under the occupation, uh, Nazi occupation, in Kiev, in Kharkiv, in Lviv. And then when Soviets came, well, they mostly uh, applied the repressions against those people who stayed there, you know, even when there was no fault in their actions. Of course, the issue of collaboration is also very important, but all the nations who were stateless were basically forced to collaborate to survive. So either you evacuate or you collaborate somehow. So this is a very complicated story and I think it's very bad to have this very, you know, one linear approach. Yes, Ukraine paid a high price to have a victory, to produce this victory of a Nazism. We don't deny it. But at the same time, we show how, you know, humane history was complicated. We will end on this point. So this was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Vladimir. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and I talk to my colleague Maxim Panchenko, journalist and uh, analyst at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, on Twitter and you can listen to our podcast on uh, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. I hope you will subscribe to our channels and uh, stay with us. Mm-hmm.